Coming in three, two. Oops, I better sit on my microphone. Coming in three, two, nine. Well, help. <laughs> the worst. Actually, I'm gonna take my I think drink from out of the that. background. Okay. Coming in three, two. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Innocent Until Proven Guilty episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network. Ken Hensley is our pastoral care director and he was a Baptist pastor. I was a Wesleyan Arminian bookstore employee, rock and roller. Both of us ended up in the Catholic Church. We've been going through some of the things that we thought through on our path to Catholicism. We're with the Coming Home Network. Check us out at chnetwork.org. Again, chnetwork.org. If you're looking for fellowship, encouragement, and conversation along the way, please check out our online community. It's free, community.chnetwork.org. The only reason that's free is because some of you are very generous and support the cause. And if you want to join that group of people, you can go to chnetwork.org slash donate or chnetwork.org slash compass to be a monthly donor to our project. Ken, we've been doing a lot with Martin Luther lately, so where are we picking up today? We have been talking, yes. Yeah. Well, we're going to pick up with Luther, but we're going to start with something else that will move toward Luther. I want to begin by talking a little bit about the issue of unity in the church and address the question, is it important that the Church of Christ be one church. This is something that Catholicism emphasizes and claims. Is it important? And I want to ask the question, Matt, to launch this discussion, because I think that some some of us don't think much about this issue of division within the visible body of Christ. And I have to admit that I didn't used to think much about it when I was a Baptist pastor. I think that I was so used to the idea, I mean, from the moment I came to faith in Christ, I was just so used to the idea that the church existed in this fragmented state that it didn't bother me. Uh, you know, I, I knew the basic facts of history. I knew that the church had splintered into Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican and Lutheran, you know, and all the rest. I knew that. I knew there were hundreds and hundreds of totally independent churches and, uh, you know, ecclesial movements and what and whatnot. I knew all that, and I knew they contradicted one another on a number of issues, but this was simply how things are. You know, it, it wasn't something I thought about. It's just the way things are. I didn't necessarily see this as evidence of something being dr- dramatically or dreadfully wrong. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I follow what you're saying, and uh, me getting to the point where you were at, where you noticed that there were divisions and drastic dis- disagreements among Christians on various mm-hmm. things, did not immediately occur to me until I was probably late high school heading towards college, because to me, um, my understanding, and I think this is probably because of the way that Christianity manifested in different ways in various pockets mm-hmm. of my own family, was that I just assumed that it was different people like different kinds of preaching, different people like different <laughs> kinds of music. And that's just 
Yeah, it's a stylistic. You, know, you go kind of. where you feel like your personality is the best fit. I didn't realize that like some of these people believe you can lose your salvation. Some people don't. Some people believe that you have free will. Some people don't. Some people believe that baptism matters. Some people don't. These are all fairly large questions, but I didn't discover that until uh, much later on. Yeah, and, and there are many more, of course. And I did understand that there were, I mean, over time, I did understand that there were these real theological and even moral differences between the various Protestant denominations and churches, including the Catholic Church. I viewed it as unfortunate, the more I thought about it, but as something that is unfortunate, but for which there really is no answer. Because after all, uh, Christians just don't agree with, with one another on what the New Testament is teaching. And these various denominations, they just don't agree with one another. I mean, after thorough study, you know, uh, genius scholars in every one of these denominations, they just don't agree. And since, in my view at the time, and since there existed on earth no authoritative voice of any kind outside of the Bible itself to decide these issues and to unite all Christians in one church, I, I guess I just felt like, what can be done? You know, we've tried and we've tried and we can't do it. Uh, you know, we can't find a way. We don't agree. Okay, is during that time, Matt, that during the time that I was really beginning to rethink my Christian worldview because of the claims of the Catholic Church, it was during that time that my attention was drawn in a new way to the prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17. And these words where Jesus says, I do not pray for these only, he's referring to his immediate disciples. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. I and them and thou in me, praying to the Father, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and have loved them even as thou hast loved me. And it began to strike me. I mean, just think of the scene. Here is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. He has just instituted the new covenant in his body and in his blood. He's about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane and to begin his passion. And what does he have on his mind? The unity of the church. And, and why does he have that on his mind? Why is he praying for that? Well, he says, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me. In another passage in the same prayer, he says, in order that the world may believe, in order that the world may know. And I thought about this, and many other things were happening, but a new vision began to form in my mind related to this issue. And that is that it began to seem quite obvious to me that our Lord Jesus would not want his church splintered, fragmented, divided up into hundreds, maybe even thousands of competing sects and co uh, teaching contradictory doctrines. Look at the ways in which the church is described in the New Testament. This is something that, that began to hit me in a new way. The church is Christ's body, possessing one head. <laughs> if there's one head, you, you would think there ought to be one body. The church is Christ's bride, and there's only one bridegroom. Um, implying the oneness of the church. The church is indwelt by one Holy Spirit. You look at the images of the church throughout the New Testament, and each one of them argues for the church being one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. But it's more than just the descriptions. The apostles obviously did not want the church to be divided. Um, St. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he said this explicitly, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. That's 1 Corinthians 1.10. And then in chapter 14, verse 8, Paul takes up this military image and he warns his readers, and now I'm quoting, that if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? <laughs> you know, if the bugle is just like blasting all over the place, no one will know whether it's time to wake up, time to go to bed, you know, whether it's time to, to attack or to retreat. No one will know. And I really began to wonder how many have turned away from Christ? How many do you think have turned away from Christ and from the Christian faith because they looked at the church that is that that bears his name and rather than seeing one church they saw just all kinds of churches and not simply all kinds but all kinds of churches teaching various doctrines contradicting one another trying to steal sheep from one another the, the whole thing how many have turned away from that it's and it's a heartbreaking question and it's a question that uh, those of us who have been, you know, deeply compelled and embedded in Christianity for a long time haven't wrestled with the same way as a new believer might, right? Or as a, someone who, you know, doesn't come from any kind of like a strong Christian foundation, but feels drawn to mm -hmm. Christ, but doesn't know which building to look for him in, right? I mean, you got that. But, you know, I'm also... Uh, and obviously Christ is not bound by a building, just to put that out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but to know like who is who is speaking authoritatively on his behalf. But occasionally we'll get this, um, and this is something that did begin to bother me, and it began to bother me, I, I mentioned kind of in high school into college, because I was starting to read, among other things, a lot of the book of Revelation. Uh, and sometimes you and I, Ken, will get into um, debates with people who don't think that the church should be unified. And one of the things that they'll say to that effect is that we'll look at the book of Revelation. Um, in the beginning, John is not writing to the church. He's writing to a church over here and a church over there and a church over there. See, even from the beginning, there was, you know, different churches in different areas. Um, and I, I just want to like point out that like, I've been doing this series with Dr. Bergsma on the radio and he's been going through these letters mm -hmm. and, and as he's talking about how this all works, there is a church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This letter's not merely to the Christians in Ephesus. It's a church, right? It's a church in Laodicea. I mean, it's the, the church in Pergamum. And it's clear that John is speaking with some kind of authority that Jesus has given John the authority to present what he has mm -hmm. to say to the church in that town. Like, no matter how many different places mm -hmm. are meeting, like, all of them are mm -hmm. under some kind of apostolic authority. Like, this is how it was, Right. Paul talks this way. Uh, this is the way that we we see the envisioning Paul. of the church in the book of Acts. Like, and it it's hard to think of like how far we've fallen from that vision of Christian unity that we could just talk to the church in a town, and it encompasses oh, yeah. all the yeah, Christians yeah. in that town. Yeah, and there's no implication in those seven letters that he writes in the book of Revelation. There's no implication that these churches whole different theology you know i mean he he does no. critique them on their morals on their morals they may be good or no bad at what they're doing yeah. <laughs> but there, there's no implication that they had uh, seven different systems of theology and in paul's letters and all the letters in the new testament the same thing is is there it's implied that there's one church and it's implied that these churches are under the authority of the apostles and they have one set of teachings there's one doctrine but you know 
I kind of think you remind me of something that when I first came to the Lord, I kind of it's kind of good that I was ignorant in a way because I I think my my all the circuits in my brain would have been just blown out if right away I'd been confronted with oh now you have faith in Christ but guess what there are these people called Lutherans and there are these Methodists and Presbyterians and there's Reformed Church of this and that and there's a Catholic and Orthodox and now Ken you need to figure out which one you should join. No, it was just, I just went where my friends were going and, and, and all that. So this is something that begins to dawn on me, it began to dawn on me over time that no, the Lord would not want the church divided. But anyway, let's get to Luther now. Let, let's move forward and pick up where we were last week. Oh, that's right. This episode is about Luther, isn't it? I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, because we, because we have not been off on a random tangent here. When we left Martin Luther last week, Martin Luther himself was bewailing the explosion of divisions that resulted within the Protestant movement from his own teaching of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, the right of private interpretation. For instance, quoting Luther quickly, there are as many beliefs as there are heads. And, and he wasn't saying that because he was proud of it. He was saying that he was, he's saying this is bad. This is really bad. There are as many beliefs as there are heads. Quoting him again, how many doctors have I made through preaching and writing? Now they say, be off with you, go off with you, go to the devil. Thus it must be, when we preach, they laugh. When we get angry and threaten them, they mock us, snap their fingers at us, and laugh in their sleeves. And I just think, what did he expect? Before the authorities at the Diet of Worms, Luther had said, and I'm quoting him again, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Scripture, which is my basis. Here I stand. I can do no other. He went on to teach that this was the right, that is what he had done, was the right of every Christian to do. <laughs> that is, to practice the privilege and the right of private interpretation. Quoting Luther, in these matters of faith, to be sure, each Christian is for himself Pope and Church. And so, you and I talked about this a bit last week, but one begins to wonder, did he not imagine that others might follow his example? that others might make Scripture their basis, that they might come to positions in disagreement to his and yet find themselves convicted by the testimony of Scripture and uh, and feeling the need to say, here I stand, I can, you know, you, you know. Did he not think about that? Did that not cross his mind? And I know you have an opinion on that. You mentioned it last week. You don't really think he thought of that. He didn't really think there would be division. I think because he thought, he thought everybody he will right. read this and see that I'm right. Right. Read it for yourself. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just, I mean, yeah, I, I, I see him as more of a tragic figure. I, I think a lot of people have weighed in the comments that, you know, he was deliberately trying to cause chaos and division. And uh, you see some of that pop up in the comments on some of our previous videos, mm -hmm. but I don't, I think he honestly, you can be, and there's a place in Catholic moral theology for this understanding you can try and seek what you believe to be a good, but seek it in a misguided way to your own destruction. And I think that that's what was happening here. Yeah, and I'm sure it intensified as the ball rolled down the hill, you know, oh, gathering sure. snow, you know, the, the snowball. It, it, it intensified to where Luther, in the end, was just like, you're the whore of Babylon, you're going to hell, you know, you're apostate and all that. But no, I don't think he began that way. But anyway, okay, so Luther practicing sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, Luther advocating this for all Christians. Every Each Christian is his own pope and council. 
and then facing the division that naturally flowed from that. Okay, but this was last week's discussion and question. The question I want to focus on today moves us forward a step, Matt. The question is this, how did Luther, as well as the other reformers, how did they respond to the doctrinal chaos that was unleashed by their own preaching of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment? What did they do? And I think that this is a question that is, well, the answer to which is is so enlightening that um, I'm happy to pursue it. Now, this is something we talked about in our series on Sola Scriptura, but it comes up again now talking about Luther. And before answering the question, that is, what did Luther do? What did the Reformers do when they looked at this chaos that was unleashed by their own uh, you know, views? Let's think for a moment about what Protestant pastors in the present do. That is how they deal with the very same problem. How does any Protestant pastor, in other words, handle the division that kind of naturally occurs when sola scriptura and the right of private judgment are promoted as the law of the land. Um, I'm thinking back here, of course, to when I was a pastor. On the one hand, and I can see this tension, I can feel it, because on the one hand, I, I did want to make it clear to my congregation that the Bible was their sole, was their sole binding authority in matters of faith and practice. And so I think it was common for me to say things, probably even from the pulpit, such as, listen, this is how I understand what Paul is saying here, but I'm just a fallible creature. You know, it's your right, it's your duty to study Scripture and decide for yourself what you think is being said. So I promoted sola scriptura and the right of private judgment. But on the other hand, I couldn't allow serious division within my congregation and because of this, the question arises, what would I have done if someone who was well-respected within the church, say some senior member of the church that had been teaching you know, the adult Sunday school class for 20 or 30 years, what would I have done if he had come to me one day and said, hey, pastor, you know, I've heard you preaching sola scriptura and uh, the right of private judgment and how this is the right and duty of every one of us. And you know what? It's my privilege to go home and I've studied the Bible thoroughly and I think you're dead wrong, you know, on a couple of important issues. And I intend to, uh, I intend to begin teaching my Sunday school class next week, a 12-part series, which I'm titling um, "The Heresies Espoused by Our Dear Pastor Ken Hensley." What would I've done? Essentially, now, what your parishioner was, would have come to you and say, "Ken Hensley, unless I am convicted otherwise by the Word of God, uh, here I stand. Yeah, here I stand. I can do no other." Then uh, call you on your business here. Yeah, yeah. And okay, thankfully, in the 11 years that I was a pastor, I didn't face anything that intense, but I did face a number of situations that are sort of like, you know, 20% that direction or 32% or 40%. But what would I have done? And the answer is very, very clear. I would have met with this gentleman maybe several times. I would have heard him out. I would have attempted to convince him that he was wrong. But if I couldn't convince him, I would have had to suggest that he take his innovation up the road to another church and find a church that agreed with him. I'd have to send him packing is what I would have to do. Or you let him take it over was, your church and then you go and start another thing somewhere else where he takes over the congregation. And, and we see that happen sometimes too, right? Yeah, that does happen. Now, no pastor typically promotes that, but yeah, that, that's something that could have happened. 
That's something that could happen as well. Okay, but you understand the tension then between believing in Sola Scriptura and wanting to teach that, and then wanting your church to be united and, and dealing with division that might result from the practice of Sola Scriptura. Well, it was the same for the Reformers. Exactly the same. They also wanted to teach Sola Scriptura and the right of private judgment because they believed it to be true. But they also saw the need for there to be unity in their churches. And to maintain unity, this is what they did. They began to prohibit their followers from exercising the private judgment that they had preached and that they continued to insist on for themselves. Okay, let me say that again. This is what they did. They began to prohibit their followers from practicing, exercising the private judgment that they had taught them and that they continued to insist on for themselves. In other words, they brought down the boom just like I would have had to bring down the boom if this gentleman had come to me in my church. But again, just like the same thing going on with Martin Luther, the same perspective, the right of private judgment is predicated upon the fact that if everybody reads this with the right level of prayer and discernment and everybody reads this with the right attention to their own personal holiness, they'll obviously just come to the same conclusion as I will, right? Again, right. This, and this is why these—I think I used to be a lot madder about this stuff than I am. Now I'm more sad <laughs> than anything else because, yeah. again, I mean— you 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 read it. You're convicted by it. You're convicted by it in some sort of isolated sense from the church, mm-hmm. within the bounds of your own kind of private sense of what it is, separated from the the community of believers in the tradition, and you just assume that other people will pick it up and find the same thing. When in fact, the yeah, thing that I... has caused you to come to this is like an individualistic reading. And if you promote that individualistic w- reading with other people, they're going to bring their mm-hmm. own lenses and find something different. You know, this is much easier within a denominational system, obviously, because, you know, I was the pastor of a Baptist church and we were part of a Baptist denomination. So there's kind of an understanding that Baptist theology is what we're promoting and teaching here. And I'm teaching Baptist theology from the pulpit. So if someone comes up and disagrees with that, then it seems much more rational at that point to say, well, you know, you're not a Baptist, go go somewhere else, you know. But in totally independent churches, this could lead, you know, much more to church splits because no one, there's no denominational authority that's riding along with it, you know? It's, it's just sort of like the pastor's theology. Anyway, let me talk about something that I read many, many years ago. You've all heard, or you've heard the name Jimmy Aiken. He's a apologist at Catholic Answers. There's an article that he wrote many years ago, back in the 90s, in fact. The title of this article, Matt, was Sola Scriptura, Theory or Practice. Um, In this article, what Jimmy was doing was he was elaborating on the contradiction that existed between the the Reformers' theory, scriptures are only infallible rule, uh, you know, each man is his own pope and council, that kind of thing, between their theory and their practice, but only so long as you agree with me, okay? (laughs) And this is what he was talking about, sola scriptura, theory, or practice. And to illustrate this contradiction that he claimed was at the heart, really, of all of the Reformers in their practice at the time of the Reformation, he quoted at length from historians Will and Ariel Durant. And what I want to do here with you, so as I just want to read some of these passages, and you and I can reflect on them and comment on them, okay? 
First, regarding Luther, here's what we read. It's instructive to observe how Luther moved from tolerance to dogma as his power and certainty grew. In his open letter to the Christian nobility, 1520, Luther ordained, quote, every man a priest, unquote, with the right to interpret the Bible according to his private judgment and individual light. Luther should have never grown old. Already in 1522, two years later, he was out papaling the popes, quoting Luther again, I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even the angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. Okay, this is just two years, right? From every Christian's his own Pope and Council to if you don't agree with me, you cannot be saved. Going on with the quotation, Luther now agreed with the Catholic Church. That is, I don't think he means that Luther said, I agree with the Church, but that Luther, in essence, agreed with the Catholic Church that, quote, Christians require certainty, definite dogmas, and a sure word of God which they can trust to live and die by, unquote. As the Church in the early centuries of Christianity, divided and weakened by a growing multiplicity of ferocious sects, had felt compelled to define her creed and expel all dissidents, so now Luther, dismayed by the, vari the variety of quarrelsome sects that had sprouted from the seed of private judgment, passed step by step from toleration to dogmatism. Quoting Luther, All men now presume to criticize the gospel. Almost every old doting fool or prating sophist must, forsooth, be a doctor, a, a doctor of divinity. Unquote. Stung by Catholic taunts that he had let loose a dissolvent anarchy of creeds and morals, this is what Catholics were saying at the time, taunting him, he concluded with the Church that social order required some closure to debate, some recognized authority to serve as an anchor of faith. Sebastian Franck, Franck thought that there was more freedom of speech and belief among the Turks than in the Lutheran states. Wow. Now, to people, the people that heard us talking last week about every Christian's his own rab, rabbi, this this may sound pretty shocking. Well, more freedom of speech among the Turks. Yeah. Uh, again, this comes back to this this whole question of you know one of the the stinging criticisms of the Catholic Church is that how can a church, how can a church say there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church? How could the church possibly mm -hmm. say that? And yet, any critical look at the Reformers, and not just Luther, by the way, uh, but several other Reformers insist, maybe not in the same terms and not as colorfully mm -hmm. as Luther does, that unless you accept my doctrine, you cannot be saved. Um, there's essentially, instead of this universal private right of public interpretation where suddenly Christian, the Christian world in Europe is like this love fest of everybody who's finally reading their Bible and getting along. Instead, what you have is a dozen different people saying there's no salvation outside of my church. Um, that's what I think a lot of people don't really understand about this time period, that it's haughty when the church, when the Catholic church says it, but that's what everybody's saying at this point, because everybody realizes that if you're going to hold anything together, there has to be a place where the buck stops. There has to be yeah, somebody it, who says, this is what it means, this is what it doesn't mean. 
Yeah, and we could go off, I don't want to do that now, we could go off on the tangent of, of explaining what the church means when it says no salvation outside the church. But the point that's important here is simply that when the church says something like that, at least it's speaking consistently with what it believes about itself, because it claims to be an authoritative voice speaking for Christ. But these other, you know, Protestant churches are caught in this theory or practice routine that on the one hand, you've said the Bible alone is our sole infallible rule of faith and practice, and everyone has the right to study it and to come to their own determination. And then you want to turn around and say, but if you don't agree with me, you cannot be saved. So there's the theory and the practice just running head on. Now, some people listening to this Will and Ariel Durant quotation might, might, might respond, okay, but that's Luther. And everybody knows that Luther was was a, a wild man, you know, speaking in these exaggerated, colorful terms. He's very passionate. That's Luther. Surely his followers weren't as bad as him on this. Um, let me continue reading then, because this wasn't just Luther. No. Other reformers, quoting now from Will and Ariel Durant again, other reformers rivaled or surpassed Luther in hounding heresy. Bucer of Strasbourg urged the civil authorities in Protestant states to extirpate all who professed a false religion. Such men, he said, are worse than murderers. Even their wives and children and cattle should be destroyed. There's uh, Martin Bucer for you. Even their wives, even their children, even their cattle should be destroyed, which, by the way, raises another issue that could be a tangent. But in the, re in the Reformers, what you find is a Judaizing influence in the sense that they tended to go back to the Old Testament and read the Old Testament and start thinking that, that this is what should be applied. And so when he says things like wives and children, cattle should be destroyed, it's like he's going back to the to the, the wars of Israel of the with the Canaanites. Land. Yeah, right. yeah, and, and, and employing that language and employing those images and saying this is what we ought to be doing right now. Okay, now here's Melanchthon, the comparatively gentle Melanchthon. Quote, he accepted the chairmanship of the secular inquisition that suppressed the Anabaptists in Germany with imprisonment and death. Melanchthon recommended that the rejection of infant baptism or of original sin or of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist should be punished as capital crimes. He insisted on the death penalty for a sectarian who thought that heathen, heathens might be saved or for another who doubted that belief in Christ the Redeemer could change a naturally sinful man into a righteous man. He demanded the suppression of all books that opposed or hindered Lutheran teachings. So the writings of Zwingli and his followers were formally placed on the index of forbidden books in Wittenberg. Now, That's I, not, I, by the way, um, they're not placing Catholic books. Yeah. I mean, Catholic books obviously are, are a different category, but this is a reformer placing another reformer's books Right, uh, right. On the forbidden index. And Zwingli, um, it may be noted, and Luther and Melanchthon had like a big falling out over the meaning of Holy Communion, right? I mean, so like these are big, big issues that are splitting the reformers, and uh, they are all willing to go to the mat for their differing interpretations. And again, this is this is not like, mm -hmm. well, you know, Luther and these guys died and then it got crazy. We're talking within five years of of yeah, yeah. the 95 Theses. Yeah, and if anyone listening, Catholic or Protestant, had this image in their minds 
that the Reformers took their stand against the evil Catholic Church and that they might have burned Catholic books as they tore alt- altars out of Catholic churches and broke the windows and all that kind of thing. And yet they were just committed to truth. And so they were sort of like a big band of brothers among, among each other. No. And, uh, you know, we've looked at Luther. We looked at Melanchthon. We looked at Martin Bucer. And uh, these are strong words. I mean, strong words. I mean, all the way to capital punishment, even murdering, killing people. And at this point in his article, Jimmy, um, and if you know Jimmy Aiken, you know he's got this wry, dry sense of humor that is really a crack up. Um, at this point in the article, Jimmy basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, okay, but this is Luther, and this is the Lutheran side of the, of the equation. Surely the detached, rational, logical Calvinists would not have gone to these kinds of extremes. Surely they would not have, you know, uh, uh, they would not have had this contradiction in their system. Buckle up, because I know how this one ends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One last section from Durant's History of the Reformation. No one in Geneva where Calvin was the pastor, where Calvin actually reigned as king in Geneva, but no one was to be excused from Protestant services on the plea of having a different or private religious creed. Okay. By law, you had to come to the Protestant services every week, which were Calvinist services, okay? No one was to be excused from Protestant services on the plea of having a different or private religious creed. Calvin was as thorough as any pope had ever been in rejecting individualism of belief. This greatest legislator of Protestantism completely repudiated the principle of private judgment with which the new religion had begun. He had seen the fragmentation of the Reformation into a hundred sects and foresaw more. In Geneva, he would have none of them. There, that is in Geneva, a body of learned divines, Calvinist divines, of course, you know, Calvinist scholars, would formulate an authoritative creed, a Calvinist creed. Those Genevans who could not accept it would have to seek other habitats, which again reminds me of me talking to this fellow in my in my hypothetical in my church, and you know, I'm unable to convince him that he's wrong, and so I say to him, you know, you're going to have to seek other habitats. <laughs> I end up doing exactly what Calvin did, you know. But look at this: he has these learned Calvinist divines formulate an authoritative creed. You know what? Now I, I thought it was sola scriptura, the right of private judgment. Now there's an authoritative creed, and if and if someone doesn't agree with that creed, they actually have to leave the city. They have to seek other habitats. <laughs> they have to go to a, diff- a different town where maybe there's a Lutheran theology or some other theology being formed, you know, Anabaptist or Zwinglian theology that they would fit with. It's nuts. And we could talk about the dress code in Geneva too. That's another, you know, thing altogether. Oh, but I've been trying to think about when to insert this into the conversation because I've think- been thinking about this for a few weeks um, once we started really with the sola fide and the unraveling um of morality, and then, of course, we've been in Sola Scriptura and the unraveling of truth, and now we're talking about all the divisions. So the other day, my power went out, and the internet went out at my house, and so I still had to get work mm-hmm. done for all the various projects that you and I collaborate on, and so I went over to the local Panera thinking, here's where I can get some stuff done. And unfortunately, it was not where I could get anything done because a couple of tables over for me was a group of... uh women who were, you know, praying and talking about the Lord. And as you know, I am one of the worst theological eavesdroppers of all time. 
and in mm-hmm. comes later um, to sort of like excitement and, you know, miniature fanfare at this table, someone who was apparently an associate pastor or in some role of leadership at a local mm-hmm. community church. I was not able to determine what denomination. It sounded like it could be something in the Church of Christ, Baptist, but community church type mm-hmm. of thing. And there's a there's an issue going on in that church. And apparently, for whatever reason, these um, people in this table at this group are backing this guy. And mm-hmm. I started jokingly referring to it. I think I might refer to it in, uh, in a, a morning meeting of ours as the, the First Council of Panera. Uh, but <laughs> in this, there are a few things that are being discussed at the Council of Panera, but one of them is um, a discussion of what constitutes legitimate church leadership. And according to this group, it's, you know, well, we think that you've got an anointing from the Holy Spirit to preach and bring a message. So the authority is coming from this group of people mm-hmm. who has like a, you know, a confidence in this person. So so a discussion of what constitutes the original uh, or legitimate church leadership. There's also a discussion mm-hmm. of... Um, the nature of worship, right? You know, whether praise and worship are contemporary or hymns, you know, that's in the that's in the mix there mm-hmm. too. That's 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 less of an issue. Mm-hmm. But there's also this sense, and this goes back to some of the things you've been saying with Calvin, with Bucer, with Melanchthon. There's the sense that the only reason the people on the other side of these things are disagreeing is because they are blinded by their own sin or they haven't really read mm-hmm. the scriptures correctly. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, and now, we're in the 21st century, so nobody at this Panera table says, you know what should happen? We should go and execute all the people on the other side of this faction and make sure we kill their kittens, too. Like, this is not this is not like a like abuser situation. But at one point, one of the women says, you know, I'm starting to wonder if any of these other folks in this group are even saved to begin with. Oh, so you heard that. I don't know if she knew what she was saying when she said that, but what she was saying was essentially, I wonder if there's any salvation outside of this local community church. And as she was saying that, I wanted to be like, man, I would love to like do just a little bit of history of like the 16th century with you so you could hear what you sound like when you say that. <laughs> um, but again, I mean, it's it's the, it's Panera, it's in... Maryland, it's in 2022, but this kind of thing has been happening to one degree or another ever since that right of private judgment became, instead of a limited one within the boundaries of the Catholic Church, a universal one that then fragmented everything. Great illustration. Great illustration. And now that you've said it, I will say, yeah, that was a good place to insert it. Great. Okay, thank you. No, I mean, it, it's a good it, it's a good illustration. We see this whole I mean the whole picture kind of just becomes clear. Sola scriptura, the right of private judgment, the div- division results. How do you handle the division when you believe in unity? Um well you have to contradict yourself. And I I love personally how Jimmy concluded this section of his article. You know, it, again he's talking it's called sola scriptura theory or practice. He's He's talking about the contradiction, the inconsistency that existed between a theory where every man is his own rabbi and the practice, but only if you agree with me. And this is how he concluded this article, and it kind of cracked me up. All that here I stand, the word of God compels me, I can do no other stuff, had to be interpreted narrowly. I can do no other meant I can do, <laughs> I, I, me, I can do no other. 
It did not mean that you could do something other if you felt the word of God compelling you. You had to do what I said because I was the one the word of God had compelled. Now, see, if that sounds like a, just a, like a circuitous, contradictory kind of paragraph, it's because it is. I, I think he summarized it quite well. You know, the claim, here I stand, I can do no other, it had to be interpreted narrowly. It, it meant me. Yeah, yeah, think about this first council, Panera, where I hear this group of people in my little corner of Panera saying, our consciences are compelled by the word of God. It sounds like the rest of these people mm -hmm. on the other side of this division are compelled by their own egos. I mean, how do I not know that that group's not beating at Denny's saying, you know what? Our conscience is compelled by the word of God. And that group over there in Panera, they're just following their own egos over there. The, the people at Panera could at least say that we were able to break bread. Whereas That's you go true. over to Denny's, it's more, it's more like pancakes, isn't it? Waffles. You break the moons doesn't... over Miami. So, so I would have gone to Waffle Panera, House. That's the Panera's Catholic option, I feel like, in this analogy. Yeah. Okay, listen, though. Back to the story, back to Jimmy, back to the theory or practice. Reading this article back in the 90s, Matt, you know, I, got, I could see that, that what Jimmy was saying here was right. It, it's inescapable. The practice of the reformers in stamping out disagreement was in clear contradiction to their theory that only the Bible is authoritative and binding and that every Christian has a right and the duty to decide for himself. And even though I saw that he was right, I really felt a sympathy with the reformers in their situation because I could see that as an evangelical pastor, I was caught in exactly the same dilemma at a lower level. You know, I mean, I wasn't talking about throwing people into the stocks or killing them or anything like that, but I was facing the same dilemma, teaching sola scriptura, but needing to maintain unity at the same time. And what I came to see was that the contradiction that we're talking about, it's a contradiction that is at the heart of Protestantism as a system of thought. It's built in to the system. And I believe it's inescapable, or as like people like to say these days, um, well, what do they say? You know, it's not a bug, it's a feature, right? Okay? Division inescapable division. It's not a bug in the system. It's an actual feature of the system, an inescapable feature of the system. Now, it may be, again, another topic, maybe for another time, but it may be that the Catholic Church should have never handed heretics over to the secular uh, authorities to be punished for their heresy. That may be, like I said, that's another subject, but at least when the Catholic Church did that, it was acting consistent with what its claim was about itself. That is, its claim to possess divine authority from Christ, to be Christ's church on earth with divine authority. And therefore, you're teaching heresy, at least you're acting in consistency with that to say, you have to stop. And if, and if need be, hand them over to the civil authorities for them to be you know, stopped. Protestant churches don't claim this. And therefore, there's an innate, built-in inconsistency when they do the things that the reformers did here. Um, I would say even when they practice church discipline, you know, I, I've talked to some people from very serious reformed churches like the Reformed Baptist Church and whatnot that, will, that are serious about practicing church discipline. So in other words, someone in their congregation comes to the conclusion that the doctrine of justification by faith alone isn't true. They don't simply ask them to, you know, depart to other habitats. 
they actually will have a trial and they will condemn them and practice church discipline and excommunicate them. Which is just sort of like, how can you excommunicate someone for disagreeing with you theologically when you've already said that everyone has the right to private judgment? And only the Bible is authoritative. But again, okay. that's when you get from theory to practice. Uh, the one other thing I would only insert in this conversation is that mm-hmm. I'm not in favor of anybody being thrown in jail for their beliefs unless they incite them to violence, <laughs> right? Uh, and that when you get into the question of the debate about like, well, Catholics prosecuted this many people and Calvinists burned this many people at yeah. the stake and this many people were, this many Anabaptists were killed and this many fringe hardcore Anabaptists uh, incited <laughs> violence in their own area. That is a fruitless discussion, no matter who in that group you're trying to defend. I don't think that any of us can point to any one of those and say, well, it looks like this person over here killed two more people than this group over here, so I know which group was right. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a topic to be tabled. I think that what we what we need to look at here is exactly what you're saying, which is what does the system of thought what it's what does it entail? What is it what, what are the implications lead? of the system of thought? Right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, division upon division are built into, it's baked into the cake. It's baked into okay, the cake. Okay, now, let, let me bring this back to the Bible as we begin to, to wrap up. At the end of our episode last week, Matt, I mentioned very briefly Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and the effect that it had on me during my own study of these issues. And, and I want to hammer on it again for people who are listening to this episode that don't, haven't listened to every other one. In this passage in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about the need for unity. It's a passage about unity. And with this in mind, Paul says that Christ gave to his church, I'm quoting now, Christ gave to his church apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we each reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God in order that we would no longer be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and craftiness of men. Unquote. That's what Paul says. Okay, so now dig into the heart of what he's talking about here, what he's doing. Paul is saying that because God wants unity in the faith, he wants his church unified, because God doesn't want the children of his, his children just blown about all over by every wind and wave of doctrine. Because of that, he has given this gift of pastors and teachers to the church. Okay, apostles as well and prophets, but then pastors and teachers. Now, I was thinking many, many years ago, but I, but I was thinking about what Paul is saying here. I was thinking about what it implies. You're talking about implications of systems. When suddenly the thought came to me, what Paul envisions here as a modus operandi for the church, what Paul envisions here, it could only work. And I mean only in caps, underscored, highlighted in yellow. It could only work if there was some authoritative body of doctrine to which individual pastors and teachers were bound. What I mean by that is this. Okay, if this is the case, okay, if there is an authoritative body of doctrine, like for instance, I'm holding in my hand the Catholic, the Catechism of the Catholic Church here, big fat volume, elaborating a coherent system of theology. If there is a coherent authoritative system of theology to which all pastors and teachers are bound, 
then wherever they are pastoring and teaching, you know, whether in Chad, Egypt, Amsterdam, India, America, Canada, wherever they are in the world, they will be building up the church in unity because they're all bound to one system of theology and they're all teaching the same thing. On the other hand, on the other hand, if each pastor and teacher is free to be his own rabbi, if each pastor and teacher around the globe is free to read the Bible and decide for himself, herself, what the teaching is, then they're going to disagree with one another naturally, and they're going to divide, and they're going to create different denominations and different churches and different sects and individual movements and whatnot. And this is what struck me. Under the system of Sola Scriptura, the pastors and teachers that Paul talks about actually have become the very forces that stir up the wind and waves of doctrine and that blow the people of God, the children of God, all about. This is what we have. I mean, this is actually what we have and what we see in the world right now. We see pastors and teachers blowing the children of God all over the place because they have contradictory uh, determinations like these people you heard sitting in the, the church of Panera or the council of Panera, you know, doubting whether the other people could even be saved. So again, Ephesians four just kind of brought this home for me, Matt, that, that this is a part of the system. The system can only lead in this direction. And therefore the system cannot be the system that Paul is envisioning when he says Christ gave pastors and teachers to the church to build the church up in unity so that the children of God will no longer be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine. Clear as a bell. On the premise of Sola Scriptura, it makes sense that division will happen. It just follows. Inescapably. This is what happened at the time of the Reformation. This is what has continued to happen ever since. And let me close with just one little, that is close this, part with one little uh, quotation. Listen to this admission from Protestant historian and Luther scholar Heiko Obermann in his book, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Listen to what he says. Application of the Reformation principle of Sola Scriptura, the scriptures alone, has not brought the certainty Luther anticipated. It has in fact been responsible for a multiplicity of explanations and interpretations that seem to render absurd any dependence on the clarity of the scriptures. At a certain point in my own thinking, here's what became clear to me. And, and I was on my way toward the Catholic church. As soon as this became clear to me, it became very clear to me that if Jesus wanted his church to be one church, rather than many churches teaching contradictory doctrines, Jesus would have had to establish that church with some principle of authority outside the Bible itself. He would have had to establish that church with some authoritative way on earth that is within the church of determining Christian doctrine and settling disputes, some authoritative way. He would have had to. Otherwise, unity is impossible. He would have had and to have an thing. authoritative body to even get the scriptures in the first place. What well, if the yeah. canon had not been established yet and 1522 yeah. rolls around? Which of those groups... Would it be Bucer's group or Zwingli's group or the Anabaptists or Luther and Melanchthon 
or the Catholic Church, which one would Christians today trust to have settled the canon question if it had, if it, instead of marinating until the 380s, had marinated until the 1520s? Which group would Christians everywhere yeah. have trusted today to have gotten the New Testament books right? And it's even worse because on the premise of sola scriptura, Christians would have the right to decide that for themselves, ultimately. Even the canon. So, okay, but this is clear. This was becoming crystal clear to me. Jesus would have to have established the church with some principle of authority on earth. It would have to be an authoritative church that has authority to decide. It can't be a church where every Christian is his own pope and council, everyone's his own rabbi. Then when I looked at the New Testament, you know, I could see that the church we see Jesus establishing in the New Testament, it seems to be an authoritative church, a church that will speak authoritatively in his name. After all, Jesus says things like, he who hears you hears me. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It sounds like he's establishing an authoritative church. And then when we look in the New Testament, after our Lord ascends into heaven, and we look at the church that actually comes into existence in the book of Acts, and that we can actually watch functioning in the New Testament, again, it appears to be a church that speaks and that spoke and that could speak with Christ's authority. I'm thinking of Acts 15. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And so here's the thing that just really hit me like a brick, and I'm going to close with this. I really am going to finish with this. It was becoming clear to me at this point, Matt, that the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism as, as systems of thought, as, as worldviews, the difference between them is that Catholics believe that the church we see Jesus establishing in the New Testament, this authoritative church, the church we see functioning in the New Testament, this authoritative church, is the church that continued to exist after the age of the apostles, the church that still exists. And the bottom line is, Protestants don't. Protestants believe that the church that Jesus established, the church we see functioning in the New Testament, radically changes with the death of the apostles. And there is no more authority. There's just a Bible, and each one's right to read it. So I was debating for the past four or five minutes whether I would bring this up, but I do feel like I do need to bring <laughs> it up. Um and I apologize, Ken, if this derails us too much, but the illusion out there is that Catholicism was this uniform, rigid sect of Christianity, and then freedom burst forth in 1517, and suddenly people mm -hmm. could start to bring their own spirituality to the table, when in fact the truth of the matter is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, reformers had sprung up within the Catholic Church. And Benedict of Nursia said, I want to devote myself to work and prayer. I have read the Gospels, and that is what I feel God is demanding of me. Anyone else who sees that demanded of them, come be a monk in my monastery, and we'll, we'll do our thing. Uh, before that, Anthony of the desert hears Jesus say to the rich man, if you wish to be perfect, sell all you have. Mm-hmm and you will have treasure in heaven. And Anthony says, I don't know what that means for the rest of you, but I know what it means for me. And he starts the tradition, uh, really, mm -hmm. I mean, he's not the first, but he really animates the tradition of hermits. 
Francis of Assisi hears God say, rebuild my church, and he doesn't say, well, enough of the Catholic Church, I'm going to start the Franciscan denomination. He says, no, within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I'm going to take a vow of poverty, and me and my little brothers are going to go share the gospel in its simplicity. Dominic and his Dominicans say, we are fascinated by the incarnation. We have to know its implications on every philosophical and logical level. These head cases don't start their own new head case church, right? The Dominicans instead start a movement within the church. So when you hear a, a phrase like liberty in what is non-essential, unity in what is essential, but in all things charity, that only makes sense if you're all part of the one church, right? Or if you hear an analogy like Lewis saying, well, Christianity is like this big building and you walk down the hall and you pick which room fits your personality the best and meets your needs. That only works if you're all in the same building, right? Mm -hmm. It only works in the church because once you get outside of that, once you separate yourself from that one solid authority of the church established and carried forth through the centuries, all you're doing you're not walking into a room in a hallway in a big building. You're going and tent camping somewhere illegally on the property, trying mm -hmm. to just figure out how to play guitar around your bonfire fire louder than the guy over there playing guitar around his bonfire. And unfortunately, that's the way it's shaken down. And I hate to put it that way, but that's what I know I was doing. <laughs> you know, at various stages when I was trying to hack this question. So I apologize. That's my rabbit hole, but... The whole time you're talking, I was just thinking. Hole. Ah, yeah, that's not a rabbit hole. That's an application. Because... That's an application of what we're talking about. That's an illustration of some of the aspects. It's not a rabbit hole. Yeah. Good. If you have, yeah, I, I don't want to repeat what you said. It was very good. Okay, look. Are you done with your rabbit hole? Any final I'm touches? I'm done with the rabbit hole. I'm out of the rabbit hole. I must have taken no, a wrong no. turn somewhere at Albuquerque, but here we are. Yeah, and you fell through the looking glass. Okay. My thought, Matt, is that we're going to spend one more week kind of summing up and tying together the lessons that we've learned from our brief look at Martin Luther's life and teaching and what occurred in the Reformation. After this, we're going to spend some weeks talking about one of the most difficult issues for converts to the Catholic Church, and that is how did we come to accept and to embrace the Catholic Church's teachings about Mary. That's where we're going to go next. But like I said, one more week for us to kind of pull together all the threads and, 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 and summarize what we've learned here from Luther's life and teaching. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully we've brought some of it back around and, and we'll, we'll uh, put a nice bow on it here pretty soon. But in the meantime, yeah. uh, check out other previous episodes by going to chnetwork.org and uh, you can find all the uh, On the Journey series, uh, including all the previous episodes in this series, through there. Subscribe so you can get updated when the new ones come out. Uh, go to our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org, community.chnetwork.org, um, and check that out. Again, uh, that's a free online community, and it's free because of the generosity of people uh, who join things like our Compass program and our monthly donors. So that's chnetwork.org slash compass if you want to support that work and make it available to people who are really wrestling with these questions right now. So I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley. Thank you again. We'll talk you know to what? you soon. You and I went over an hour. I'm looking at this video. And so you apologized. I apologize. It looks like we may have just recorded our longest episode. All right. And it wouldn't have been the longest without rabbit your rabbit hole. hole.
<laughs> it's no. rabbit hole. Okay, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week, Matt. No rabbit holes next week. Goodbye. Later days. I'm off to Panera. <laughs> <laughs>